It's election season in Canada. Hi, I'm your host, Drew Wilson. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Friesland Official Podcast for September 2019. Here are your top three headlines. As technology issues bubble beneath the surface during the Canadian election, one notable party is absent entirely. Facebook suffers another data leak. 419 million phone records have been compromised. A large chunk of them are already up for sale on a hacker forum. And a group of MPs in the UK proposed banning the sale of in-game loot boxes to children, but the ESA pushes back. Of course, we begin this month's podcast with what is happening right here in Canada. Earlier this month, the writ was dropped for a 40-day election. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau set the wheels in motion to dissolve government, signaling the official beginning of the Canadian election. At the time of the election was called, there were a number of issues floating around. There is, of course, the SNC-Lavalin scandal, the rising tide of xenophobia, the growing calls to take action on climate change, and the concerns about the economy. Then there is the issues that are just below the surface, such as the opioid epidemic, affordable housing, gun violence, and the gutting of the sawmill industry, to name a few issues. Of course, one thing that is decidedly absent from all this is the issues surrounding technology of any kind. To some extent, this is actually surprising, considering Canada faces a number of crucial technology and digital rights debates. This includes issues surrounding data security, with the Desjardins data breach as an example. Then there is the issues surrounding internet censorship, which the CRTC rejected, but is still being pushed through the copyright review process. Additionally, there is the corporate lobbyist push to extend the length of copyright terms from the already excessive life plus 50 years to the more extreme life plus 70 years. Also, there is the big issue of Canada considering cracking down on security by compromising encryption. Those are just a few examples. So, at the beginning of the election, it really looked like critical technology and digital issues would simply get swept under the rug for the duration of the election cycle. Things looked even more grim for digital rights when we looked at the status of one political party. This political party has digital rights top of mind. They also have a long history of pushing these issues closer to the forefront of the Canadian conscious. That, of course, is the Canadian Pirate Party. 24 hours after the writ was dropped, we saw the official website was offline. Additionally, Facebook and Twitter feeds have fallen silent as of 2018. We sent a media request through official channels, but as of this time, did not hear back from them. When it seemed like all hope was lost, digital issues made an initial appearance in a rather bizarre fashion. During the McLean's leaders' debate, a debate that the Liberal Party was absent from, the moderator put forward a question asking candidates about their position on Brexit. It was a rather odd question given that the debate was settled in 2016 when Britain voted to leave the Eurozone. The moderator did later admit that it might not have been a popular question. Still, Green Party leader Elizabeth May was able to squeeze in a technology issue. May argued that a large reason why Brexit was passed is thanks to public opinion manipulation online. She says that this is thanks, in part, due to the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. While there could have been an interesting debate sparked by that, the debate quickly shifted away, causing the issue to simply get whisked away into obscurity again. Shortly after the debates, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh made an, a policy announcement. The party unveiled a plan to cap cell phone and internet bills. 
Singh pointed to a large body of evidence that shows that Canadians pay some of the highest bills while also getting some of the worst service. Obviously, this announcement didn't come from any prompting of the media. So it seems that the NDP chose not to wait around and take the lead on the matter. It's worth pointing out that high cell phone and internet bills, along with poor service, has been an issue that has plagued Canadians for years now. Technology and digital issues then went from an issue that risked vanishing into the background to a two-horse race between the NDP and the Green Party. After that announcement, the Green Party released their party platform. In the platform, the party said that they would tackle a huge number of issues. These issues include breaking up large media conglomerates, forming a parliamentary committee to look at the security of 5G networks and the Internet of Things, defending network neutrality, enacting right-to-repair legislation, getting the CRTC to increase competition in the cell phone and internet industries, and requiring a warrant before surveillance organizations can spy on individuals for their political beliefs. That's just a few highlights of what we were able to find in the platform. While there are a massive number of positive elements in the platform, there is one point that is concerning. The Green Party also said that they would require social media platforms to demand real names and link accounts to real people. This is going to be a concern for marginalized communities who face potential backlash for their political beliefs. While this is clearly aimed at Russian troll farms and bot networks trying to influence the political debates of another country, this point could have major unintended consequences for free speech. So while we can't say the platform is perfect by any means, Almost everything else we've seen is certainly positive news. Thus, it puts the Green Party in a clear lead over all the other parties on this front. After the big move by the Green Party, things fell quiet on this front. This, of course, is thanks to the major political scandal where conservatives leaked a photo to Time magazine. That photo, of course, shows Justin Trudeau, while he was a teacher, wearing blackface and a turban. Liberal supporters tried to point out that this was during an Arabian-themed costume party, but Trudeau quickly admitted that what he did was wrong. While Trudeau said that there was only one other time that he could recall that this took place, two more incidences surfaced shortly after. So, for three days, the political debate took a hard turn towards discrimination, marginalization, and xenophobia. After about three days, Trudeau tried to write his derailed campaign by making more policy announcements. One policy announcement right after involved the reduction of cell phone bills. The policy announcement, of course, made the Liberals look like they were copying the NDP's policy announcement. Reporters pressed Trudeau on details about how he would accomplish this. One reporter suggested that the carriers are rolling out 5G networks in Canada. Trudeau simply responded by saying that he would help with investment in the infrastructure of 5G networks. Additionally, he said he'd work with carriers to reduce the bills. So a rather vague promise trying to move away from the blackface scandal while seemingly copying the NDP's announcement to a degree. We'll continue to monitor the election front for any developments on technology. Moving on to our second big story, once again, Facebook is finding itself embroiled in another privacy controversy. This time, it involves yet another massive data leak. In this case, 419 million cell phone numbers have been potentially compromised. The news comes with an air of irony given that one of the reasons why Facebook wanted people's cell phone numbers in the first place is for the purpose of two-factor authentication. 
This, of course, is supposed to enhance people's security. As Facebook started collecting the cell phone numbers in the first place, the social media giant caught controversy from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The EFF says that Facebook is taking those cell phone numbers and using them for advertising purposes. Now the cell phone numbers controversy has gotten worse when a researcher discovered the cell phone numbers on an unsecured server. For its part, Facebook contends that the leak contains data from last year. They also say that they have since changed how they handle the information in the first place. While that doesn't seem like much of an excuse, there might be a legal reason why Facebook is making that argument. Back in July, Facebook was fined by U.S. regulator, the FTC, $5 billion. The FTC, at the time, said that the fine is, in part, supposed to act as a deterrent for what Facebook could do in the future. So, by saying that Facebook has changed since then, they appear to be trying to dodge legal uncertainty by regulators like the FTC. Regardless of explanations and reasons, it seems that the damage by the latest leak is being felt. Shortly after the story broke, 220 million of those cell phone numbers popped up on a hacker forum. The poster who posted them said that anyone can purchase those cell phone numbers for $1,000. Someone was able to ask why this individual is selling the phone numbers, and the poster responded, saying that the sale is for, ironically enough, marketing purposes. We now turn to our third big story and the big issue that causes a lot of controversy in the gaming community, loot boxes. To put the issue as lightly as humanly possible, this is a very thorny issue in the gaming community. A quick rundown on loot boxes is that game companies can put in place a way of buying in-game purchases. In those in-game purchases, there is an item known as a loot box. Loot boxes have a random assortment of in-game items such as skins, weapons, upgrades, characters, or even advantages for the players. What some game companies are doing is introducing rare items into the game. Prior to purchase, players do not know what they are getting. So this encourages players to buy a large number of loot boxes for the chance to obtain that rare item or perk in the game itself. Of course, as things went along, some people began questioning whether or not this is gambling. Those critics, in all fairness, do have a point. When you buy a lottery ticket, you are hoping to win a jackpot, but do not know if you'll be getting it prior to purchase. When you put a quarter in a slot machine and pull the arm, you don't know if you are going to win big or not, but you are hoping to win that large amount of money. Very few people would dispute that those are examples of gambling, so why are loot boxes any different? At this point in time, there aren't many regulations surrounding loot boxes, so gaming companies are free to sell those loot boxes to children who play these games in the first place. For a number of people, this raises some pretty big questions about ethics and morality. This in light of the fact that gambling addictions are a very real health concern, so why should children be exposed to such things? While some might not be sure about viewing loot boxes at that angle, it is this angle that is front and center in the UK. A group of UK MPs are proposing that loot boxes be classified as a form of gambling. As such, they are calling for the government to ban selling said loot boxes to children. As the British committee found out throughout their inquiry, this issue has a lot of money at stake. And I mean a lot of money. In one instance, a member of the public said that their adult son had racked up 50,000 British pounds in debt while playing the game RuneScape. 
Jagex, the makers of RuneScape, said to the committee that gamers can potentially spend up to £1,000 a week or £5,000 a month. If one were to consider the math of that, even if you cut those figures in half and multiply half the number of people playing that game, the numbers can grow to be quite big. So probably the least surprising thing about this debate is the game companies are fighting back. The Entertainment Software Alliance, or ESA, which represents a large number of game companies, said that they dispute the findings of the committee. They issued a statement which reads in part, We take seriously issues raised in the UK Parliament's Digital, Culture, Media and Sports Committee report, but strongly disagree with its findings. As demonstrated by the recent announcement of policies regarding the disclosure of the relative rarity or probability of obtaining virtual items in paid loot boxes, as well as the robust parental controls that empowered parents to control in-game purchases, the video game industry is the leader in partnering with parents and players to create enjoyable video game experiences. The statement also said that other governmental bodies in other countries have conducted their own investigations. The ASA suggested that they came to different conclusions. Of course, that does run contrary to a report published by the BBC earlier this month which points to another country banning the sale of loot boxes. The country in question is Belgium. In response, gamers reportedly said that they were happy with the ban. Gamers also said that they view loot boxes as dishonest to begin with. One thing is for sure, with a lot of money on the line, as well as the potential political precedent, this issue only stands to heat up the way things are going. It was a tough one determining what wound up being our big three stories this month, so you'll probably be interested in hearing about some of the other stories making news this month. There's been a couple of dramatic developments happening in the country of Ecuador this month. Currently, Swedish developer Olabini is currently in jail accused of being a Russian hacker. As you might recall, he was the developer who was arrested for the so-called cybercrimes of possessing technical manuals and hard drives. Regardless of the odd evidence, Ecuadorian authorities tried to paint him as someone related to WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange. In a recent development, trial evidence was leaked to the media. The evidence shows a picture of a screenshot of a computer with a black background and scary white text. Some suggest that the screenshot is supposed to somehow prove that Beanie is this big evil hacker threatening to undermine democracy. That thought might have been persistent had the Electronic Frontier Foundation not examined the photo themselves. In response, they had to point out that Telnet is not a crime. They point out that the screenshot in question simply shows Beanie finding the existence of a server. After that, a warning message appears, warning against trespassing on that server. Beanie then allowed the connection to close with no further action taken. Later on this month, things took a scary turn for the worse in the Beanie case. Beanie's defense hired technical expert Fabian Hurtado to act as a witness in the trial. According to Amnesty International, Ecuadorian authorities responded by reportedly violently busting down his door without ringing first and seizing his cell phone and equipment. During the raid, Hurtado wanted to see the warrant they carried out, but authorities refused to not only let him have a copy of the warrant, but also refused to allow him to see it in the first place. The Electronic Frontier Foundation responded to the incident, saying that this represents a whole new low for the Beanie case. They call the actions witness intimidation. 
Amnesty International, for its part, said that the actions taken by Ecuadorian authorities puts Beanie's right to a fair trial in jeopardy. As we saw this month, Beanie and those associated with him aren't the only ones facing a scary situation in Ecuador. Data analytics company Novastrat suffered a data leak. In all, 20.8 million Ecuadorian records were exposed. The leak discovered the leak was discovered by security researchers working on behalf of VPN Mentor who found the database on an unsecured Elasticsearch server. While the number of records may only seem moderately big at first blush, take into consideration the fact that the entire population of Ecuador, as of 2017, is 16.62 million people. Also take into consideration the fact that the database had 6.7 million records on Ecuadorian children. So this company practically leaked the data of the entire country. Some are calling this one of, if not the biggest data leak in Ecuadorian history. With the context of Beanie's treatment, you might think that Ecuadorian authorities wouldn't hesitate to act on this. You would be correct. Barely 24 hours after the, this massive story broke in the country, Ecuadorian authorities arrested the executive of Novastrat. Authorities additionally said that they are now investigating the company at the center of the massive data leak. Meanwhile, in the U.S., YouTube is currently litigating a copyright troll that has been allegedly abusing their DMCA system. What the troll is accused of doing is issuing DMCA notices against people's channels claiming that they infringed on their copyright. The problem is that the content may not be something that the troll actually owned in the first place. Hijacking the system, the troll then demands payment for YouTubers to have the strike removed. If the troll's victims refused, the troll then allegedly took things to the next level. Taking advantage of the fact that there is personal information that is revealed in the process, the troll would then obtain victims' addresses and swat them. Swatting, of course, is the act of reporting a threat and compelling the SWAT team to raid the person's residence as an intimidation tactic. After the swatting, the troll would then demand the ransom payment to make all this stop. The EFF highlighted the case and said that this is the extremes copyright trolls are able to go before they are stopped. We also got an update for the Submato 2K Games controversy this month. For those following the case, Submato apparently received leaked footage of an upcoming game, Borderlands 3. While he also mixed in speculation, apparently 2K Games took notice and issued copyright strikes against his channel while sending investigators to his house. Intimidated, Submato said that he is reconsidering a lot of things while going on hiatus. Now, it appears that Submato's channel has disappeared altogether from YouTube. In the wake of the channel's disappearance, many are calling for the boycott of Borderlands 3. Some have organized under the banner hashtag BoycottBorderlands3 on Twitter. In response to the growing controversy over 2K Games' actions, a representative spoke to the media to defend the company. Take-Two and 2K take the security and confidentiality of trade secrets very seriously, a 2K representative told The Verge. The action we've taken is the result of a 10-month investigation and a history of this creator profiting from breaking our policies, leaking confidential information about our product, and infringing our copyrights. The information he's sharing about the situation is incomplete and in some cases untrue, the representative said. Not only were many of his actions illegal, but they were negatively impacting the experiences of other content creators and our fans in anticipation for the game. It's unlikely that this response will cause the controversy to go away. 
Canadian Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale received backlash for his stance on encryption prior to the election being called. After the Citizen Lab blasted Goodale for making a proposal that was, quote, irresponsible, unquote, a staff lawyer for the Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, CIPIC, joined the condemnation. In an opinion piece in the Toronto Star, Tamir Israel said that the proposal would put public safety at risk. His comments read, in part, The government's innovation agenda, aimed at making Canada a global innovation leader, is also threatened by this new proposal. Far from attracting the world's creators to Canada's doors, requiring companies to use broken encryption creates a hostile environment for innovation. Nor are encryption backdoor mandates likely to ease investigative pressures. Past attempts by states to limit the use of strong encryption have simply led to criminals to adopt secure tools that are developed in foreign states. In the end, backdoors make us all less secure while doing little to impede those willing to break the law. Facebook is facing a probe from multiple states in the U.S. In this case, Facebook is facing questions over antitrust issues. New York State Attorney General Letitia James made the announcement and is joined by the Attorney Generals of the states of Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Nebraska, North Carolina, Ohio, and Tennessee. Meanwhile, a Facebook opponent is facing backlash of their own. The UK's National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, NSPCC, accused Facebook of putting children in harm's way. They pointed specifically to Facebook's push to encrypt messages on their messaging apps. They argued that encryption would cause the site to lose the ability to detect child grooming, thus endangering children. Those comments quickly received criticism. An editor from VPN Compare said that the comments show a chronic misunderstanding of how encryption works in the real life. David Spencer says they are prioritizing security over privacy. While some children are victims of grooming, the overwhelming majority are not. Is it right that they should all have their messages left open to hackers and online spies? Spencer further comments, the NSPCC's stance is effectively advocating a nanny state. By keeping children safe online is not just the responsibility of social media sites. Encryption protects children and everyone from a huge range of online threats. The U.S. is currently considering a huge controversial new piece of legislation. The U.S. Case Act would create a whole new judicial system for just for dealing with accusations of copyright infringement. The court would hear cases that involve damages of $30,000 or less. While backers say that this is voluntary and simply revolving around small claims, the EFF quickly disputed the comment that this is about small claims. They say that damages that reach $30,000 has the potential to ruin lives. The EFF further argues, The case act is not as involuntary as its boosters say it is. It cannot be emphasized enough how inadequate an opt-out system is. The way the Case Act is currently structured, the Copyright Office sends a notice about the complaint to someone along with information about how to opt out. If they don't opt out within 60 days of the notice, in whatever way the Copyright Office decides is the proper way to opt out, then the person is bound to whatever decision is made by the Claims Board, even if they don't respond or don't show up at all. The EFF further argues that this new law would make lives easier for copyright trolls, and worse for everyone else.
Meanwhile, the EFF is applauding Mozilla's effort to implement DOH encryption. DOH encryption is also referred to as DNS over HTTPS. In short, it would add another layer of security for web surfing. Spy agencies denounced the move, saying that Mozilla is becoming a villain by making the web more secure. The EFF, meanwhile, said that this initiative patches a privacy vulnerability that would otherwise permit browser session hijacking and some forms of web censorship. Valve, makers of Steam, is admitting they made a mistake. Valve operates a bug bounty program to help make their software more secure. Russian security researcher Vasily Kravitz discovered a vulnerability that could open up Steam to zero-day attacks. Valve, in turn, turned down the report, saying that it didn't fit within the rules of finding vulnerabilities because of the nature of the vulnerability. As such, Kravitz was forbidden from talking publicly about the finding. In response, Kravitz eventually broke the rules and disclosed the vulnerability to the public. In response, Valve re-examined the vulnerability and patched the software. They also said that when they turned the researcher away, they made a mistake. As such, they are also reviewing the rules of the bug bounty program. Speaking of security, we also saw our share of security incidences this month. Things kicked off this month with Suprema, the maker of biometric software Biostar 2, suffering from a data leak. As a result, 27.8 million records were exposed. The software is used by UK police, banks, and defense firms. Next up, porn sharing website Luscious suffered from a data leak in all 1.2 million records were exposed. After that, web hosting company Hostinger suffered from a data breach. In response, the company reset the passwords of 14 million customers. Cybersecurity and DDoS mitigation company Imperva was hit with a data breach. The company, which uses the tagline, protecting the data that drives business, faced the brutal irony that and is taking steps to secure their own information. Yevis Rocher also suffered from a data leak. In all, 2.5 million Canadians had their information exposed. Finally, automobile company Dealer Leads suffered from a data leak. In all, 198 million vehicle owners were exposed. Certainly another dramatic month in the news here on FreezeNet. Now turning towards entertainment, here are video games we reviewed this month. Space Shuttle for the Atari 5200. A generally boring game where most of the game pretty much plays itself, so this game flops with 36%. Next up is Star Trek Strategic Operations Simulator for the Atari 5200. Not many levels really to speak of, but the controls are quite solid, so this game gets a reasonable 70%. From there, we tried Congo Bongo for the Atari 5200. A game with a grand total of two levels, though what is there is actually pretty good. This game gets a mediocre 62%. Finally, we played Crazy Shootout for the Atari 5200. Limited ammo, buggy controls, and largely a clone of Berserk. So this game gets a barely passable 52%. Before we get to the music reviews, we actually got an exclusive sneak peek at a forthcoming album from Sayavaya. That album is called Soul Searching. It features two discs. One disc features original music with collaborations with other artists. The second disc features a number of interesting remixes of the same tracks. A lot of tracks have a bit of a slower tempo, but there is something for everyone here. 
Saivaya told us that when they produced this album, they took an introspective path which would explain some of the new agey slower tempo tracks. We decided to give you a taste of what is on this new album, so here's a bit of the track Hope, which features Adia Nicole. So let's take a listen.
definitely a nice refreshing track to listen to. Hope you enjoyed that taste. As a note, this album is due out November 1st, so we're not too far away from it now. Definitely a pleasure when we see something new from Sayavaya hit our inbox. So we would like to thank Sayavaya for this opportunity to get a chance to listen to the album. Also, we'd like to take the opportunity to remind everyone out there that the sneak peek section is fueled by you, the artist. If you are unsigned or from an independent label and would like to see your future releases featured on this podcast, feel free to drop us a line. If we are interested, we'd be happy to feature it here. As for other music we've listened to this month, we've got Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You, Four Non Blondes, What's Up, DJ Miko, Sky High, Herbie, Right Type of Mood, Real to Real, I Like to Move It, Depeche Mode, Policy of Truth, For Real, Highs Off You, Scorchio XY Mix, The Sundays, Here's Where the Story Ends, and finally, The Church Metropolis. So that leads us to our pick of the month. This month, our pick of the month belongs to For Real, Highs Off You, Scorchio XY Mix. Also be sure to check out DJ Miko, Sky High. And in other news... Heading out to a local and going for a pint is a very British thing to do. So it's probably not a huge surprise that the price of beer can be the subject of complaints. However, few complaints could even come close to what Peter Laylor had to pay when he visited a Manchester hotel. Laylor, an Australian cricket news reporter, ordered a bottle of Ducher IPA. Apparently, he didn't notice that when he paid for it, an error saw him being charged 55,000 British pounds. <laughs> Layler said that the beer was good, but not that good. The issue is currently being resolved at this point for the obvious error. Shoot, a fellow could buy a pretty decent car for that kind of money. <laughs> for a lot of people, the idea of a nice warm shower can be relaxing. Many no doubt have experienced a moment where a nice warm shower was interrupted. Some might even say that they wouldn't ever get out of the middle of a shower either. However, one homeowner in Spring Hill, Tennessee had a really good reason to get out of his shower. As it turns out, someone driving a bulldozer was in the process of demolishing his entire house. (laughs) Managing to remember where the towel was... The owner rushed out and stopped the driver. As it turns out, the driver of the bulldozer went to the wrong address. Oops. (laughs) Hope the driver or the company had some really good insurance. That one is gonna sting. (laughs) A truck carrying pallets with Chessex six-sided dice overturned on the road, spilling its load. Trivium Studios was apparently hosting an unannounced tabletop gaming event. Crunching the numbers, Kotaku said that the incident probably saw a dice roll of 756,000. <laughs> a representative from Trivium decided to make light of the situation, saying that this they could be the unofficial holder of the world record for largest dice roll. <laughs> the mess has since been cleaned up. Before we close out the show, we've got two announcements. First, we have completed the beginner's tutorial for Photoshop. With this guide, you can start with minimal knowledge and move up to being able to use Photoshop to perform a number of small projects. Also, you'll be able to use that knowledge as building blocks to go further into learning the software. We hope you find this guide interesting and useful. 
Also, on a much smaller note, we are now archiving old episodes of our podcast on Patreon. We are currently experimenting with different methods of archiving our old shows, and this is one of those experiments. As we archive old shows, we'll update the public postings so you know where you can get the podcast directly. Old shows will be distributed for free, of course. Also, huge shout out to Nolan for providing mixing and recording services. We really do appreciate the work he puts into this. If you'd like to get your hands on some behind-the-scenes stuff, exclusive content, and early access material, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash freezenet. Through this, you can help make FreezeNet just that much better, all the while getting some pretty cool stuff in the process. That's patreon.com slash freezenet. And that's this month's episode for September 2019. I'm Drew Wilson for FreezeNet. Be sure to check out our website at freezenet.ca for all the latest in news and reviews. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at freezenetca. Thank you for listening, and see you next month.